the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bible teachings from familiar voices. We are AM 630. The Word. KSLR. San Antonio. Hi, this is Dennis Prager, and I want to encourage you to see my dentist, Stan Shelton, and his incredible team. They can provide you with a dental experience that is not only educational, but allows you to be involved in planning your care. Let them show you the wonders of modern dentistry. Their office is on Broadway, just one exit east of the airport. Give them a call at 590-7878, and their website is drshelton.com. That's drshelton.com, and you can connect at facebook.com slash Shelton Dental. My dentist, Stan this is Pastor Les Holland of Trinity Baptist Church. We're a five-generation church family, communicating and applying the life-changing message of Christ's unconditional love, helping seekers to become believers and believers to grow as disciples. Are you looking for a church family for children, youth, or adults? We have an opportunity for each and every one. We invite you to learn more about us by going to trinitybaptist.org. We look forward to connecting with you in our 100-plus ministries. Everybody's doing it, and everybody's making money at it, except you. You're losing holiday business to your online competitors, and you don't know how to get in the game. Talk to us at Salem Surround, digital marketing experts who offer a free analysis of your digital marketing effectiveness, even if you have none, and suggest methods that could dramatically increase your sales coming out of this season. We can design and implement all of your online marketing under one roof, give you monthly reports on results, and instantly move your dollars to the most effective areas of your online advertising and sales. Social marketing, geofencing, web search enhancement, event targeting, and more. Now, there are no limitations on where you can reach customers with Salem Surround, increasing sales dramatically. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. It's Monday. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. And to do that, all you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 
1-800-930-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them in that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer and you will then be able to answer your or ask your question hands-free. One more time, 340-9585. Before we get to the questions that have been sent in, uh, let me thank you. So, so many of you came to our Christmas dinner uh, yesterday at the Shirt Civic Center. Um, we were really pleasantly surprised by the number of radio listeners. I think I got around to meet all of you. If I didn't, uh, please forgive me, but um, we just had a great turnout. I, I think our, our people stopped counting at, at 1,500 people that were served. And um, actually, we almost did something that we've never done before, and that's we almost ran out of food. And I thought that would be an impossibility for Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. But it was really a great time, and I uh, got to meet some of you who have called in, so I know by first name basis. But uh, just thanks for taking the time, and, and I pray you are blessed. I pray that you found the people as warm and loving as as they typically are. It was really, really uh, a good time. Uh, my, our, our event planners, we've got a, a ministry here at the church called Martha's Kitchen, and they do so much. I mean, they, they prepare meals for people in the hospital, for people who are um, recovering from things, and, and, you know, we just provide meals during the week for people in our body. But they also do events like this. And uh, the, the first day back, after the thing, Vanessa, who heads up the ministry, she comes to me and she says, I've got a plan. I said, a plan for what? She goes, for next year. I said, don't even think about next year. Jesus will be back before next year. She said, no, we've got to do this. So we had to rent the other side of the Shirt Civic Center um, so we have enough space. Uh, our kids, bless their heart, they were sitting on the ground eating. Um, as big as that hall was, it wasn't big enough, evidently. So um, don't worry, you can still come next year. We're going to have a bigger a bigger place and uh, we'll have to have uh, more food. I especially want to thank uh, the 36 people that were on the, 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 the list of servants. Uh, we served in two shifts and um, it takes a lot of people to do that and they served with all of their heart and what a great, great job they did. So thank you, those of you who rather than just come to sit down and talk and enjoy, uh, also worked. I'm really, really grateful for that. And of course, for all of you who made food, Paula, especially you, because I eat your food. Um, it was uh, just a wonderful gift, and the Lord, I know, was pleased. So thank you for coming. Let's get to questions. Here is the first question from our email inbox from AA. Uh, he says, Pastor Ron, we're studying the Genesis story of Isaac and the twins, Jacob and Esau, in my Sunday school class. At the end of Genesis 28, Jacob makes a vow to God, end it by saying that he will give a tenth of all that he receives from God. My question is, to whom did he give the tenth? There wasn't a temple during the day, nor Levites attending a temple. Did this mean that he simply let a tenth of his crops and livestock stay in the field when it was harvest time? Did he build altars day and night burning things? Can you explain? A, the answer is is no. Um, you understand that while there was no temple, the law, of course, hadn't even been given. This was some 400 years before the law was given to Moses. Um, but um, 
from Abraham. Uh, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. So the idea or the principle of giving a tenth to God was established even in his own family line. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, so, so the idea of a tenth. Um, I, I honestly don't think that he thought it out. Um, and, and here's the reason why. When you get to Genesis 28, there's something really important that you have to notice. Um, let me go back to verse 20 in Genesis 28. It says, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now Jacob's early Christian life, um, and when I say Christian life, just to equate it, uh, with our lives following Christ. Of course, he wasn't a Christian in a traditional sense. But, but his early life is a study for us about how not to be a Christian. Uh, in verse 20, the word if, it's conditional, it's important. And then in the next verse, um, verse 21, I think. Yeah. Uh, then the Lord will be my God. So if and then. What he was doing is he was being conditional in his relationship with God. And, and the reason that's important to point out is because this is the way too many of us treat God when we give our life to him. You know, instantly we start negotiating, you know, okay, Lord, I know you promised to be with me, never to leave me or forsake me, but I need you to prove it, then I'll serve you. Lord, if you answer this prayer, then I'll serve you. And Jacob is simply negotiating with God. He's asking God for three things that most of us can relate to. He's asking for protection from Esau. He's asking for provision. And he's asking for God's plan to line up with his plan. All in all, AA, he's saying, God, if you do this, then I will be yours. Then you will be my God. Then I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. And it never works that way in our relationship with God. Uh, a little bit later in Genesis, we see just how miserably that fails. Uh, Jacob is going to, to learn eventually, but it's going to be a very long, difficult lesson culminating in Genesis chapter 32 when he has that famous wrestling match with Jesus. So uh, a, that's what's going on there, and um, it's not so much a... a um, the, the real intent of his heart to give to God. Um, he's just sort of negotiating, laying his chips on the table and God's not accepting them. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, anonymous question. Nope, not this one, it's the other one. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time seeing things. Here's a question from Zachary from our mobile app. He says, I've heard 1 John 2.19 used to explain people who walk away from their faith that they were never really saved to begin with. But as far as context goes, isn't 1 John 2.19 specifically referring to antichrists and false teachers in the church? Um, Zachary, yeah, but the, the idea here is you're, you're right about the context. But, but remember, in, in this particular case, we're talking about the man that we're going to call the Antichrist. 
John referred to him, but also to the spirit of Antichrist who is behind all of the false teachings in the church. But it's that same spirit which is behind the, um, the, the, the people who are secure uh, in their profession of faith, but there's no fruit. People who appear to have fruit for a short time, but then sort of fall away from the Lord. We want to know if they're really saved or they're not. So John explains it. Now, there's something else that I think is really important here, uh, Zachary, to understand. Uh, um, John and Peter does this in his epistles as well. Um, John has this memory, this, this whole episode with Judas being the betrayer really impacted both Peter and John for the rest of their lives. And I can imagine both of them talking to one another or sort of wrestling with it and praying themselves, how did we not know Judas was a betrayer? How did we not know? And Judas, of course, went out from them to prove he was never really a part of them. And I think John is using verse 19 in First John chapter 2 to, to, to explain Judas. I think he's using to explain those who appeared to be believers but who turned to false doctrine or who turned to other gods or some who simply fell away in sin. Now normally, Zachary, when I talk about this verse, people get angry with me. Um, but, but it's really important because we've all known people who once claimed to be Christians uh, who turned their back on Jesus altogether no longer live like believers. And we want to know, were they saved? And if, you, if they were saved, did they lose their salvation? Or did they ever have their salvation? Um, especially when they're people that we know and care about. Well, John's answer is very straightforward and it explains a lot. People who say they're Christians but don't live like Christians are not Christians at all. Now not only is 1 John littered with those kind of passages, uh, starting in the very first chapter, uh, John tells people who claim to be saved but aren't acting like he calls them liars. So he's saying, you know, fruit will prove who they really are. We wonder about people who appear to get saved. You know, we see some quick, immediate change in their life and, and, and to some degree even produce a little bit of fruit. Uh, I know people who claim to have been saved, who led others to Christ, but are no longer following the, God, the, the Lord themselves. Well, John's statement is they proved who they really were by leaving. Now, if we understand that, then it explains two things. One, why we don't have to worry about who's saved and who's not saved, because God knows. But it answers a lot of the questions that we have about people who've fallen away. Now, in John's context, um, he's addressing Gnostics, uh, who appeared once to be Christians. The Gnostics were the super spiritual types. They worshipped Jesus. Uh, they, they appeared to be assimilated into the larger body. Uh, many of them would have been fruitful. But because of false doctrine, all that changed. And now the Gnostics in John's day were teaching others that Jesus was God for sure, but he wasn't a human because a man has flesh and God can't have flesh. And their conclusion that they were teaching now was that Jesus was the Christ, but he wasn't the man Jesus. It's kind of the opposite of today. Today, uh, Zachary, people... 
um, don't, uh, nobody denies the, the humanity of Christ. He's a real person. Everybody knows it. The evidence is overwhelming. Uh, today they denied the deity of Christ. It was just the opposite in the first century. And that's the heresy, the specific heresy that John is dealing with in First John. Uh, that they went out from us to prove that they were never really part of us uh, answers the question. So if somebody claims to have been saved, oh, I tried Christianity, I get that a lot, Zachary. Well, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Well, that doesn't mean they were ever going to heaven. It doesn't mean their heart was ever changed, transformed. It just means they were exposed to the truth. At one time, they recognized the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a big difference is the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8. As they indicate there's a lot of seed that falls, but it falls on hard ground. Other falls on shallow ground, and no fruit is produced. So I hope that explains First uh, John 2.19. Um, the context is, uh, for sure, referring to Antichrist, but it's not, uh, it's the spirit really behind the Antichrist and false teachers in the church. And in John's day, as I said, he was dealing particularly with um, the Gnostic heresy. 340-9585 for your live questions. Here is... Another question, this one is from Eric from our email inbox. He says, my boy and I were going over David's life in our Bible reading time. We were going over David and Bathsheba. He's young, but he understands the basics of what happened. But he asked me, if love keeps no record of wrongs and God is love, then why did God have his, the sin of David's recorded for all history? We're all reading about it now. I'd feel pretty bad if someone was reading about my sin in the future. I wasn't sure how to answer that. What would you have said? Uh, the first thing I would have said is congratulations for knowing New Testament Scripture. That's awesome. I mean, that's just awesome. Eric, you're doing a great job with your son. You don't tell me how old he is, but, but this is a son who quoted to you 1 Corinthians 13, at least parts of it, and it's a very, very salient point. Now, here's why God told us the whole truth about people. Um, if all of the heroes of the Bible were presented only in a positive light, then the Bible itself would lose credibility. You see, the Bible is not a story about man. The Bible is a story about the one man who was God, Jesus Christ, and how he works, and these constant reminders of God's grace, God's slow to anger, God's patient, and, and abounding in love, um, th those statements about the character of God are validated by the stories that were told. Now, you can tell your son this. If you sin, it won't be written in a book. God will know it. But the blood of Jesus covers it. The Old Testament heroes in particular, their sin wasn't covered by the blood. It was covered over until the death of Jesus. But it wasn't blotted out. And this is just an example of how God works with mankind, how willing and eager God is to forgive. 
You could also go to the New Testament. Paul doesn't hide his sins. We're told in the book of Acts that Paul was consenting unto the death of Stephen. In other words, he was the guy that gave the thumbs up. And then he persecuted the church, guilty even of murder. And Paul brought those up himself. And every time sin is brought up, as it relates to one of the, what we would call the heroes of the Bible, Eric, every time there's two reasons. One, to teach us how not to fall into the same traps. Hebrews says these things were written as examples. First Corinthians does also. These things were written as examples for us. But the primary reason they're there is to emphasize how God reconciles the world's sinners to himself. And I love that about him because Paul described himself as the chief of sinners or the worst of sinners. He said that his zeal was without knowledge. In other words, he was ignorant. But you know, Eric, I always think of my, my sin my willful sin. I knew what I was doing. And at least from my perspective, that makes me worse. And yet I'm covered in grace. Never will I stand before the Lord and have to give account for my sins because they're all going to be completely covered by the blood. So the instruction to us in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we are to keep no record of wrongs personal instruction versus the examples given in the lives of our Old Testament and even New Testament heroes. Eric, God bless you for being so faithful to teach your son in the Bible. Sounds to me like he is um, on his way to really, really understanding the Bible. Let me see. Our next question comes from Anonymous. Um... Pastor, on given the condition of our world, how should Christian parents view being fruitful and multiplying? Is there a limit on the number of kids that we should have? Uh, anonymous, no, there's no limit on the number of kids. That's between you and the Lord, you and your wife. Um, the command to be fruitful and multiply is clear. Uh, it is a good thing. I mean, it is a really good thing when people have large families. And I think our stand... Um, in faithfulness to God and His command um, to be fruitful and multiply against the world that says, no, our planet is wasting away, we're already overpopulated, you shouldn't have more than one child or two children. Um, you know, that was a big deal when I was growing up. Um, and now it's sort of having a resurgence. And uh, you, honestly, there's people that will have a bunch of kids and uh, other people look at them like they're, they're guilty of some terrible sin. Uh, we sent a pastor out to uh, Washington State, uh, anonymous, um, I think 12 years ago. And um, uh, he, he planted a church on uh, Friday Harbor, um, one of the islands off of the coast there. And his wife, they have nine kids. Is it nine? Yeah, they have nine kids. And um, in Washington... Um, everybody's so um, earth-oriented. Uh, his wife, one day with tears in her eyes, said, 
uh, Pastor Ron, they're 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 nicer to dogs than they are to kids. They look at me with disgust. If you had a, a, a leash full of dogs, uh, they'd be nicer. Um, but you see, one of the things that we Christians can do is take opportunities like that and share our joy. You know, if I had that many kids um, and that was God's plan for me, I would never be embarrassed about it at all. So uh, as Christian parents, do what you feel like God is calling you to do. Your wife needs to be a partner in it, obviously. But when you're in agreement with something, then you just keep doing it. Can I use this for one other... Um, we get four minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll go on about this for another couple minutes. Um, I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. And one of the things I hate to hear people say, young people especially, I'll ask them, do you, have, do, do you plan on having kids? Well, not now. We're going we're gonna to wait two years. We're going to wait three years. Um, well, what does God say? And they, they almost always have ne never even consulted God. There's nothing wrong with birth control. There's nothing wrong with managing your family, the size of your family. But why would we do that without first consulting God? We call him Lord of our lives. He's the one who brought the, 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 our spouse into our lives. He's got a plan for us, surely. Shouldn't we, from the very beginning of our relationship, shouldn't we start consulting God to find out what his plan is for us instead of holding on so tightly to our own plan. And um, kids just don't think that way anymore. And I'm trying, even from the very beginning of pre-marriage counseling, I'm trying to get them to consider the obvious truth that those of us who call Jesus Christ Lord ought to put him in charge of our lives. God wants you to have a pot full of kids. I promise you that's what you want because that's best for you. If God wants you to limit the size of your family, then that's best for you. He's capable of doing that. My point is that we just need to consult Him who makes the plans. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we're His workmanship. I've said it many times on this program that that word is poem or we get our English word poem from it. It's, it's as though we're God's expression of duty, so we're created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if God has prepared a path for us, and this is not just for Christian parents, this is for everybody. If God's prepared a path for us, then we need to hold on to Jesus' hand so tightly to ensure that we remain on that path. And as long as we're on that path with Jesus, Everything that's there is something that we don't want to miss out on. And way too often we miss out on stuff because we've got our own plans. So if you end up with a whole bunch of kids, that's his plan, that's what you want. If you limit the number of kids that you have, that's his plan, that's what you want. So Anonymous, I hope that helps uh, a little bit, but uh, I wouldn't even consider the condition of our world. Um, we're going to be bringing children into a, a sinful world, a, a world that's so different from the world that I grew up in. But think about this, and I'll finish this half of the program. If you have a child 
and that child is born into a world that's completely rebelling against Jesus Christ. Whatever happens, that child is going to heaven, and you're going to be with that child forever and ever and ever. And you don't have to worry. I, I just told the pastor that I was talking about, Joe and Anna, have seven kids, and they live on San Juan Island north of Seattle. So not nine kids. I'm sorry, Joe. Seven kids. Hey, thanks for the question, Anonymous. You've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. We have 30 minutes left in our Monday program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show um <laughs> paula paula texted my producer and said um it's seven kids, not nine kids. And and during the break, I told Sam, the producer, I said, you know, I bet I'm going to find out anytime soon that she's pregnant again and it's twins. So nine was probably kind of from the Lord. Here is a question that just came in from our email inbox from Ed, referring to Psalms 134. He says, where is Zion located? Is the sanctuary referred to in the psalm in Jerusalem? Or is it any of the sanctuaries throughout Israel where they all to be watched over 24 hours a day like Solomon's temple? Isn't Jerusalem Zion? Ed, the, the key to your question is your last statement, isn't Jerusalem Zion? Zion, more than a place, is an idea. It's the city of God. It's the kingdom of God. Uh, it, it's the place as we know that Jesus will rule and reign from during the millennium. So uh, Zion is where God's people are. Zion is the idea that, that uh, the righteous reign of Jesus Christ will occur. So uh, it's not a specific location. Um, there, there weren't uh, temples, obviously, or sanctuaries uh, all over Israel. Uh, there were high places and other things where they, were, where they would do sacrifices. But the idea is this is that the, the, the location where, where God is. And that's what's being referred to in that psalm. And then in the other places you read about Zion uh, is a, a concept that we will realize uh, on this planet at another time. So I hope that helps, Ed. You know, we, we get a lot of anti-Zionism stuff um, from the media. Um, those uh, nations in the Middle East who are committed to the destruction of Israel are anti rabid anti-Zionists. Um, the idea is rebelling against God. So good question. Thank you for it. Here is a question from Isaac. He said, do you know anything about the, and I hope I'm saying this right, the Enneagram by Richard Rohr? A lot of my friends are endorsing it on social media. Uh, Isaac, I, I, I have casual knowledge about it, what it's like. Uh, it's not something that I would read. And if they're really your friends on social media that are endorsing it, uh, and if they are professing Christians, you need to warn them against it. It's sort of a self-actualization um, uh, program. It's, 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 it's like a modern-day personality test. 
The Enneagram is, uh, uh, it looks kind of cultic as you look at the symbol, um, but it's nine steps to determining who you really are, to, to discovering God's purpose in your life, uh, to be the best you that you can be. The problem is, of course, that's a message that's in contradistinction to the Bible. Uh, our Bible tells us that the best thing we can do is to lose ourselves and then be reformed in the image of our Jesus. So these self-help books, these personality-type psychological tests, they've been around forever. Uh, I know, especially in Baptist churches, uh, personality profile testing uh, has been used to, to try to identify um, uh, spiritual gifts um, uh, for a very, very long time. Um, but that's just the most worldly idea. So this is a book that people ought to avoid. Uh, Richard Rohr himself is a Roman Catholic. Um, Roman Catholic, by definition, has very little knowledge of, of the Word of God and, and the intent of the Word of God. Um, so Isaac, this is a, a book that ought to be avoided at all costs. Hope that answers your question. Pray for your friends. Here is a question from Scott. He says, to be an elder, we must be the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Um, literally, in the Greek language, it's a one-woman man. Uh, we know that multiple wives polygamy was uh, has been practiced from the very beginning of time. Uh, never endorsed by God. God simply reports the facts. So in ancient cultures, having more than one wife uh, was um, um, pretty common. Um, but now to be a leader in church, and, and Scott, when we're told an elder there, that, that's, that refers to the office that we call pastor. Uh, and, and what he's saying is you, you have to be committed to one woman. That's all. You can't be a serial divorcer. You can't be somebody who has a, um, a girl on the side. Um, you have to demonstrate your faithfulness to your wife, uh, your faithfulness in the home uh, before uh, one can be expected to be faithful. Uh, if, if we had a, a pastor, there's some wonderfully gifted teachers um, whose personal lives are a mess. Uh, I wouldn't let one of them come on my staff if they'd been divorced and remarried three or four times. I wouldn't do that. By the way, that's just what we consider sanctified adultery. This one's not making me happy. Let me get another one. God wants me to be happy. And that's not the case. So it means that we're to be the husband of one wife. We're to be a one-woman man. It does not mean, Scott, that you can't be divorced. Uh, I know a lot of people that were divorced, pastors who were divorced before they got saved. Those sins are all forgiven. Uh, certainly God hates divorce, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Um, but it's to be committed to the woman you have. There's something else I want to point out here that we need to understand. It doesn't mean you have to be married to be a pastor. The one who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, was not married. So it doesn't mean you have to be married if we, if we took it as literally as some try to take this passage of Scripture. Well, just one wife, you can't be divorced. Well, I ask, well, well does that mean you can't be single either? Well, no, nobody would say that, but that's what you're saying. So it means you have to be faithful to the woman you have. Be a one-woman man.
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from James. And by the way, now I've got three questions that are, are pretty related. Uh, so if you're going to call with a question, I'll sort of break these up. Um, but if not, I'll just go through them all together. James says, it seems that a lot of Christians, um, especially singers and songwriters, are accepting of homosexuality recently and publicly. Why are they doing so? James, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, they don't really know the heart and the character and the holy nature of God. Uh, it's something that's lost on them. Um, they certainly don't know the Word of God, and probably their relationship with the Bible is casual at best. They have an understanding of all the love, love, love passages, but, but avoid the passages of Scripture that sort of govern our behavior. Um, and they're doing it. Now, the, the singers and the songwriters, we've had, oh gosh, I guess in the last four years or so, we've had a whole bunch of really well-known Christian recording artists who have come out publicly as gay, men and women, by the way. And um, the reason they're doing it is, and, and others are accepting of it, I had a, a question recently about Jen Hatmaker, uh, very public in her faith, um, but she says that after a year of diligent study and prayer, her and her husband have determined that God is approving and accepting of same-sex, faithful same-sex same -sex relationships. Um, here's why they're doing it. In the world that we live in now, they're finding out the cost of standing firm in God's Word. What's the cost? The cost is they lose recording contracts, they lose um, listeners, they, 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 they get vilified on social media. And they want to be popular. Now, a lot of these people are, are just artists, they're singing Christian songs, but it doesn't mean their walk with the Lord is strong. And they want to just be accepted. And when you really, really learn the true cost of standing firm for God, it's more than people are willing to pay. Other times it's they don't have a solid theology, they don't know the Bible, they don't really get doctrine. And you're right, James, it is happening over and over and over. I don't know this girl, I've never listened to any of her music, but the latest one is a, 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 a female Christian singer a recording artist named Lauren Daigle, and I, again, I don't know who she is, um, but she's being vilified by Christians on social media. By the way, Christians shouldn't do that. Um, but, but she simply said, well, she can't judge whether or not homosexuality is a sin because she's not God. That's up to God. And truth is, we can judge because we have the Word of God very, very clear. So here's the first related question. Um, comes in anonymously, both of these do. How can loving monogamous same-sex relationships be wrong? How could God expect people to live without being sexually active? Let me ask you, anonymous, how could God ask his own son to die on the cross for our sins? If there's anything that's ever been unfair, that's it. So how could God ask that? Well, he did it for you and for me. Now let me go one step further as it relates to sexual... Um, our sexual lives. God is the one who gave us the gift of sex. That means he controls it, he governs it, he makes the rules. 
And if God says same-sex relationships are wrong, they're wrong regardless of how it feels to you. You know, when you can say, let there be light and there's light, you get to make the rules. Here's what I want you to consider, Anonymous. When you have a friend, somebody you care about, and they're living in a relationship with somebody of the same gender, a relationship that the Bible says people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, how could you say that you love them and not tell them the truth? You see, if we really love somebody, we really have to tell them that this is a relationship that's going to send you to hell. It's, it's, it's sinful. God rejects it. To claim that you're a Christian, we have to agree with Christ. So how can you say you love them if you're willing to let them go to an eternity being tormented without telling them a way of escape? As to the second question, how could God expect people to live without being sexually active? God expects us to live being obedient to Him. Is it really possible that our sexual desires are to be treated as idols, we worship it? Is it impossible to consider that God would give grace? The Apostle Paul says being single is actually even better than being married because you can devote all of your time and all of your strength to serving God. Is God asking too much? He who gave his only son for you So Anonymous, here's your challenge. You've got to decide who you are. You're listening to a Christian radio show, you send this in. It's likely that you fancy yourself a Christian. But how can you be a Christian and disagree with our Christ? So examine your heart. Are your attitudes formed by the world that we live in or by the word of God that he left us. If you think, well, the Bible's an ancient book. It has no value for today. God is ancient. He never changes. So you got a decision to make about who you are. Now, you have the right to disobey. But you don't have the right to disobey without accepting the consequences, understanding the consequences of those choices. The Word of God is very, very clear. Here's the third related question, uh, only because of the topic. And this is also anonymous. Uh, so, Pastor Ron, would you discuss gay conversion therapy? Uh, I think gay conversion therapy is cool. It's ineffective. Um, I think it's a fantasy. So as you can tell, I'm deeply opposed to it. Uh, I cannot believe that in the Church of Jesus Christ there are people who would be so hateful and unloving. Um, we need to understand people better. Now, can God transform people with same-sex attraction 
and make them attracted to the opposite sex? Of course you can. We can't talk anybody out of being gay. We can't pray somebody from being gay. It's just something that we, we all, all, all of us ought to be embarrassed by. Let me say this. Here's what I can say to everybody who struggles with same-sex attraction. God's grace is sufficient. As I discussed in the other question, don't make your sexuality an idol before God. The Bible says we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. That means we can live holy lives. We can live holy lives. Whether it's hetero or homosexual activity, we can live holy lives. And our conversion therapy ought to be simply loving people, accepting people, praying for people. Now by accepting people, I don't mean accepting their sin. As you tell people what they're doing is wrong, they're not going to accept you. But we've got to stand firm. We have to be immovable in a world that really resents anybody being immovable. And so the way we deal with homosexuals who come to our church is to welcome them, to love them, not to look at them like they're broken or defective. We need to be compassionate, empathetic. By that I mean we need to understand how difficult it is what they're being asked to give up to come to Jesus. Yeah, we can tell them God is love. We can tell them God will fill them with the Spirit. All those things are true. But we need to understand how difficult it is. Consider this. If, if Jesus would have met me all those 28 years ago, and he said, the only thing you have to give up to come to me is Paula. But I love her. you got to give her up. Well, in many cases, that's exactly what we're telling people that are involved in same-sex relationships. The person you love, the person that loves you, can no longer be in your life if you accept Jesus Christ. That's a really hard ask. And if we understand that, then we can be compassionate. Not to stir the pot with another controversial subject, but, but, but the same thing is true with the immigration debate that goes on in this country and sadly goes on in many Christian churches. We need to understand how difficult a position people who are fleeing from their own countries are in if they're f fleeing for their lives. I told you before that we have uh, planted churches in Mexico. Oh, we're gonna, getting ready to plant another one in the very near future. Um, the cartels run everything. doesn't matter whether you're in a little village or in a big city. And people are in danger. And when they want to escape the danger, especially in the border towns, I think most of us would do whatever we had to do to protect and provide for our families. And that's what men are doing. Now, we can balance the rule of law. It's not something the church is asked to do. This is a, a government uh, question. Well, it's what we elect people to do. But every one of us as Christians, we need to deal face-to-face, person-to-person, 
with great compassion and great empathy, understanding that they're only doing what we would do if we were in the same situation. Does that mean we want a full-scale invasion of people? We want open borders? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But remember, it means that whoever Jesus brings in front of you is your neighbor. And he told us a story about a Samaritan who was the only one who really loved his neighbor. So we approach these controversial things that way. But if you have a lack of empathy or compassion for people who are being asked to sacrifice everything, then you need to examine your heart. 340-9585, here's a question from Anonymous that just came in from a mobile app. We have the Holy Spirit, God living in us. We have God's Word, a layout of who God is. So why is it that King David seemed to have a better idea of who God is as seen through the Psalms than most Christians do? Wonderful question, Anonymous. We just finished a couple of weeks ago um, our study through First and Second Samuel. And uh, um, it's a question that you're always asked. You, know, you, you, you hear that David is a man after God's heart, and then you read about all of his sins and the terrible things that he did and the, the poor decisions. One of the worst fathers ever. And we wonder, well, well, how could he be a man after God's own heart? Here's why David had a better idea of who God is than we do, because David owned responsibility when he messed up. David understood the holiness of God. David walked in the fear of God. We Christians, in our modern culture, we've lost completely the sense of fear of God. Whenever we say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Christians will always say, what's well, the, the reverence of God or to be in awe of God? No, it's to be afraid of Him. I promise you, Anonymous, every single one of us, if we looked into the, the, the throne room of God, like Isaiah did in a vision, or like Daniel did in a vision. We would fall on our face undone, so fearful we would be trembling at the holiness of God. And we have lost the sense that being holy is a requirement. And the worst part about it, as you point out, is we have the Holy Spirit living in us. David could never have understood that concept. David was the best repenter that I find in all of Scripture. When he repented, he never tried to avoid the consequences. He never tried to rationalize or explain his sin away. When Nathan came to him and said, David, you're the man, David fell down it just against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Anonymous, when we repent in our modern culture, we say, God, well, I'm not sure it was sin, but if I sin, please forgive me. And we rationalize it. But she said this, or he said that, and that's why I did this. We've lost the sense of the holiness of God. We've lost the fear of God. And that's why David is a man after God's own heart. David never lost that fear of God. David never tried to run away from God. David one time tried to conceal his sin with Bathsheba for nearly a year. He said, inside my bones were wasting away. I was crushed internally. That's what it was like to hide from God. In the 84th Psalm, 
the time when he was out hiding in the caves from Saul, he, 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 he longed to be in the presence of God. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, he said. And when we understand that, if we long for the presence of Jesus, then we'd see the power of the Holy Spirit. Anonymous, the last thing I'll say about your question is this one. Um, you have identified the reason that we don't see the power of God in our lives as well. We've decided Jesus is our buddy. He is, by the way. But that he's only our buddy. We've decided, as you can tell by the questions today, that God wanted us to be happy. I'm presuming a professing Christian right and say, um, does God really expect us to live lives without sexual activity? How could a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship be wrong? That's somebody who doesn't fear God. That's why we don't experience the power of God. It is also why the church corporately has lost its power. It's why people look at us from the outside and point and call us hypocrites. It's why miracles are a thing of the past, virtually. We really need to regain that fear of God. We might have a revival if, in fact, we did it. Okay, I didn't see it. one minute. Oh, I thought I had another time to ask a question, so I don't. So let me just say this. Um, thank you again for um, taking the time to come out yesterday. I think we had about 15 uh, families that, that came out simply from the radio show, uh, and it was wonderful to meet you and, and get to know you just a little bit. Um, just thanks for your prayers. We had a great, great day yesterday. You hear the music. Our hour is over. The time goes so fast. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and you've been listening to the Word of Stand for Life. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Lord willing, anyway, we'll be back. May the Lord bless you and keep you until then. Ladies, Bible study night. Paul will be teaching. Pastor Ken, the men, in our youth studies. 7 o'clock. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.